He was a young, budding gay kid in a household that had the homophobia of the day. He had set his sights on becoming a big star, not a singer, not a songwriter. He wanted to be a star. He wanted world dominance. And he figured out very quickly that he was going to have to take steps to hide in order to get what he wanted. The first half of his life, George spent in creating George Michael, and the second half of his life, he spent destroying George Michael. Way Out, the international LGBTQ radio magazine. I'm Lucia Chappelle. Tbilisi Pride and Jakarta Queer Confab confront violence, Japan's top court rules for trans toilet rights, and James Gavin chronicles the life of George Michael. Those stories and more this week because you found This Way Out. I'm Michael Lebeau. And I'm Ava Davis. With NewsWrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending July 15th, 2023. A mob of right-wing protesters attacked LGBTQ pride in Tbilisi, Georgia, forcing the abrupt cancellation of the festivities on July 8th. An estimated 5,000 opponents carrying national flags and religious symbols, vandalized the event stage at a lakeside park in the capital, burned rainbow flags, set other fires, and looted the bar. Deputy Interior Minister Alexander Durakvelitsi swears that police officers on the scene were overwhelmed by the rampage and chose to evacuate attendees by bus before the horde arrived. However, the organizers condemned the police for failing to monitor the major road into the festival site, and for having an insufficient number of officers on hand. Some accused police officers of being more sympathetic to the protesters than the pride-goers. There were no serious injuries, but no one was arrested either. It's not the first time pride celebrations in the Eastern European West Asian nation have come under attack. Dozens of journalists were assaulted during Tbilisi Pride in 2021, and a TV cameraman died after being beaten by anti-queer protesters. The Georgian Orthodox Church has opposed efforts to expand the rights of sexual and gender minorities. Politically powerful church officials recently called for a ban on what they called LGBTQ propaganda. Georgia has expressed interest in joining the European Union, but EU officials have accused the government of failing to advance human rights and liberties. Georgian officials have also been criticized for attempting to forge closer ties with Russia since Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. Violent threats on social media have forced the cancellation of a Southeast Asian LGBTQ conference scheduled to begin this week in the Indonesian capital of Jakarta. The Indonesian Ulema Council is a powerful Islamic clerical body. Its spokesperson, Anwar Abbas, told reporters, The government must not give a permit to an event that contradicts the values of religions in Indonesia. The Indonesian and Filipino advocacy groups that are jointly sponsoring the conference have now moved the event outside Indonesia. Their media statement says that the change is to ensure the safety and security of both the participants and the organizers. In their words, 
Threats to the very existence of our lives and dignity are part of the everyday realities of LGBTQIA persons. For security reasons, conference organizers are refusing to name the new location. In its first decision directly addressing the workplace rights of LGBTQ people, Japan's Supreme Court has ruled in favor of a trans woman's right to use office bathrooms that conform to her gender identity. The unidentified 50-year-old trans woman works at Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry. She filed suit in 2015 after her superiors banned her from using the woman's bathrooms. A district court found in her favor, but the Tokyo High Court overturned that ruling. The Supreme Court said this week that denying the plaintiff access to her preferred bathroom was an illegal abuse of power that caused her significant inconvenience. It rejected the government's claim that the comfort of her fellow employees was more important. The plaintiff told reporters that the High Court July 11th opinion could also apply in other human rights issues where discrimination still happens. Japan's conservative federal government has lagged behind public opinion and the nation's judiciary in advancing LGBTQ equality. The G7 meeting in June made lawmakers feel more pressure as the only major economic power in the world without marriage equality. They passed what critics called a meaningless measure to promote understanding of the LGBTQ community. Vladimir Putin's cronies in Russia's lower house of parliament on July 14th passed the final reading of a proposal to ban all medical and legal gender changes. That includes hormone therapies and gender affirmation surgeries. The measure also bans transgender people from adopting or fostering children and annuls a marriage if one of the spouses seeks to change their gender. Medical professionals and transgender rights advocates warned that such legislation would create an underground market for hormone therapy substitutes. They also predict an increase in suicide attempts by younger trans people who would be denied access to health care. The bill now goes to Parliament's upper house for expected approval before going to Putin for his signature. It's just the latest in Russia's escalating crackdown on the humanity of LGBTQ people. Putin took time away from his illegal invasion of Ukraine to push a measure through Parliament late last year that expanded the country's notorious no-promo-homo law to muzzle all citizens from expressing public support for LGBTQ plus rights. U.S. judges ruled against transgender rights in three states this week. A three-judge panel of the Ohio-based U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit voted 2-1 to one to temporarily reverse a lower court's injunction that blocked Tennessee's ban on gender-affirming care for trans people under the age of 18. The law can now take effect even as a lawsuit challenging its constitutionality goes forward. Unlike the rulings in similar cases in other states, the Sixth Circuit majority decided that such a constitutional challenge is likely to fail. A lower district court continues to hear a challenge to the law. The U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision was repeatedly referenced by the opinion's author, Judge Jeffrey Sutton. Dobbs returned the issue of a woman's right to choose to the states. Sutton concluded that the issue of gender-affirming health care for minors should also be decided on a state-by-state basis. Advocates for Tennessee health care professionals and families with transgender children are being represented by the ACLU. Their joint statement calls the ruling beyond disappointing and a heartbreaking development. 
Georgia's state ban on health care for transgender minors will also be enforced as its constitutionality is being challenged. U.S. District Judge Sarah E. Garrity claimed that a request to temporarily block the measure was filed too late. Although hormone treatments are reversible, the law uses the guise of protecting children from irreversible harm to prevent Georgia families from seeking gender-affirming care for their trans children. Healthcare professionals are forbidden from providing it. A Kansas judge has issued a restraining order preventing the state government from issuing or changing a trans person's driver's license that differs from their biological gender at birth. Shawnee County District Court Judge Teresa Watson sided with Republican Attorney General Chris Kobach, who challenged Democratic Governor Laura Kelly's support for those changes. Watson's ruling cited public safety concerns. Her restraining order can expire after 14 days or she can renew it. In better gender news, an 11-year-old Wisconsin trans girl temporarily has the right to use campus bathrooms that conform to her gender identity. The legal filing identified her only as Jane Doe number one. The sixth grader has been using the girl's bathroom since third grade, but school officials inexplicably told her parents last month that she must now use either the boys or a gender-neutral toilet. District Judge Lynn Adelman decided that the plaintiff will suffer significant irreparable harm without a temporary restraining order against the school. Finally, Wisconsin elementary school teacher Melissa Temple was officially fired on July 12th by the Waukesha School District Board of Education. Temple came under fire for choosing the Miley Cyrus and Dolly Parton duet, Rainbowland, for her first graders to sing at an annual school assembly. Milwaukee Area School District Superintendent Jim Siebert banned the performance in March after he decided that it could be perceived as controversial. given for her firing was not her choice of songs. Siebert claimed that Temple had deliberately brought negative attention to the school district with her social media posts and print and broadcast interviews criticizing the ban. Temple's lawyer said she's filing a First Amendment claim challenging the board's decision. In the meantime, the veteran teacher told Milwaukee area TV station WTMJ, I just wanted to say thanks for to everyone who came today and thank you for everybody who sent me such sweet messages and support and I really appreciate it and I also wanted to just say hi to my students because I haven't been able to talk to them since March and I really miss you guys and I love you and I really wanted to be there with you this year and I hope that we get to see each other really soon. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude for the week ending July 15th, 2023. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Thank you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. For This Way Out, I'm Ava Davis. Stay healthy. And I'm Michael LeBeau. Stay safe.
Our listeners support This Way Out in many ways. By subscribing to our e-newsletter, email us at info at thiswayout.org. And through your financial contributions to our program. More information and a link to give are online at thiswayout.org. Thank you. When an award-winning music biographer takes a deep dive into the life of an enigmatic gay rock star, the Grammy Museum in Los Angeles takes notice. At the museum's special evening with the author, This Way Out's Brian DeShazer was on hand to capture some of the highlights with their permission. Here's the evening's host, Adam Weisler. Renowned author, a Grammy nominee himself actually, written numerous celebrated biographies and articles, Mr. James Gavin's here to talk about his acclaimed new book, George Michael, A Life. First of all, the time, the work, the effort, the heart that's gone into this. And it's called The Definitive Biography. And after reading it, I really couldn't call it anything else. What made you want to put that time, that heart, that energy into exploring his life? The album Older. How many of you know that album of George's from 1996? Up until older, I was aware of George Michael, and I knew all of those hits because you couldn't not. They were part of the musical wallpaper of the time. I knew all the words to them, but nothing had really tugged at my heart the way older did. Um, George, a little bit of background on that album. George had released a a big hit album called Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1, in uh, 1990. And he was unhappy about a lot of things. He was unhappy with the way that album had been marketed. It had sold half of what Faith, his big blockbuster solo debut, had sold. He was taking it all very personally. He was unhappy with the George Michael doll that he had created and sold to millions of people. He was unhappy with a lot of things to do with himself. And so he unsuccessfully sued his record company. And years went by. And during those years, 1991, 2, and 3, he had met and lost the love of his life, this beautiful young Brazilian man named Anselmo Falepo, whom George perceived as an angel from on high, the love that he never thought he would find. And a year and a half into that relationship, Anselmo died of AIDS. George was absolutely shattered, and the next album that he created was a kind of attempt to resurrect Anselmo. And it was an agonizing experience for George to put that album together. The writing was very, very hard. He was completely stoned throughout the creation of that album because he had to be in order to get through those sessions. They were so raw and painful and personal for him. And Older came out in 1996, and I was captivated by that album. I love sad songs. I love people singing about their pain. It's my thing. George was associated with happy songs that made people want to dance, but the sad George Michael is the one that drew me in. And that album came out in the U.S., and it had a Brazilian feeling in in homage to Anselmo, and it was slow and stoned and floating. And I was, uh, I became a big, big fan at that time. 
Now the album was a number one hit in the, U in the UK and a flop in the US. And that made me feel <clears throat> protective of George. It made me feel closer to him because I thought people don't get this album and it's the most beautiful thing he's ever done. And at that moment, I resolved to someday write something about George. George dedicated that album while, to Anselmo while not specifying who Anselmo was in his life, but obviously a very important male figure in his life had died. And there are songs on that album. G George felt that that album was his coming out album. He didn't verbalize it explicitly, but there's a song on that album that is my favorite George Michael track called Spinning the Wheel. Remarkable song. Remarkable production. It is slinky and sinister and sexy. And it's a song about um, unsafe sex and cruising in the age of AIDS within a relationship. And one of the refrains is one of these days you're going to bring some home to me. That is danger. song it was unmistakably about what I just described and it completely escaped notice. However, people were starting to get after George to come out and interviewers were probing into this and George found himself in interviews having to sidestep that issue in very convoluted ways. And you could see that his uh, discomfort was growing and growing. He was a young gay budding gay kid who was in a household that had the homophobia of the day. This was the 70s, early 80s when he was growing up. And his dad was an intimidating, focused, tough Greek Cypriot immigrant to North London, a self-made man <clears throat> who had made that big move and had opened up a restaurant successfully and had become a family man, had three kids, and he created a, a comfortable middle-class existence for George and his two sisters. However, as George's sexuality began to stir, he became aware of the fact that this was not well thought of in the world and that his dad, who um, freely used words like poof, uh, was not approving of any man that was not a manly, manly man. By the early 80s, right before the, the, uh, the uh, inception of, of Wham, uh, AIDS broke out. And then George began seeing tabloid newspaper covers with uh, AIDS horror stories on them. Combined with all of this, however, was the fact that he had set his sights on becoming a big, big star. Not a singer, 
not a songwriter. He wanted to be a star. He wanted world dominance. And he figured out very quickly that these two things did not fit together very well and that he was going to have to take steps to, um, to, 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 to hide in order to get what he wanted. And all of George's problems stem from that time. You are listening to James Gavin, author of George Michael, A Life. James Gavin is a writer and music biographer and is also the author of Deep in a Dream, The Long Night of Chet Baker, Is That All There Is, The Strange Life of Peggy Lee, and Stormy Weather, The Life of Lena Horne. And now back to the Grammy Museum. He was out to her by that time, by the way. After Anselmo died, he wrote a letter to his mother and his father. His father hated the fact that George was gay and his mother just embraced him all the more tightly. His mom, who was a beautiful stabilizing force in his life, who offered him nothing but unconditional love, wanted nothing more than for him to be happy. Uh, but when Leslie died in 1997, that's what really sent George spiraling out of control. And still he was not coming out until he forced himself out of the closet in a most uh, embarrassingly public way. It astounds me that given the, the, um, the nature in which George came out of the closet, which all of you know it was it had to do with an arrest at the in the Will Rogers Memorial Park in April of 1998 and the fact that even after that he was at at best reluctantly gay and Elton John after George died said that he felt that George had never been comfortable being gay and I think that's correct I will, what did Andrew Ridgely do? I'll tell you what Andrew Ridgely did. If it were not for Andrew Ridgely, there probably would not have been a George Michael, and there certainly wouldn't have been a Wham, because George was this terribly shy, insecure, pimply kid, this true nerd in high school, and there uh, was this classmate who took him under his wing. And that was Andrew Ridgely. And Andrew was just so cool. He was, um, he had this blasé confidence about him. Nothing seemed to bother him. He attracted people. He was confident. He was, uh, he was sexy. He was everything that George wanted to be. And he was a template for the superstar that George was dreaming of becoming. And uh, they bonded, strangely enough. And, uh, the co-manager of Wham! was a man named Simon Napier-Bell. And Simon Napier-Bell would later say that uh, Wham! consisted of a real Andrew Ridgely and an imitation Andrew Ridgely, which was George. So beyond that time, uh, it was very clear to both of them who was going to do the heavy lifting in that group. George had all the talent. And for Andrew, it was a joyride. It was a lark. And... Uh, Andrew had, had done more than enough. He got made fun of a lot because he was not really doing anything other than standing there and acting cool. But, you know, if it, again, it, 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 it's what made George a star. It, it shone the light that, that George followed. Wake me up before you go, go. Don't leave me hanging on the light of yo-yo. Wake me up 
I've never heard either of them speak an ill word about the other. Their lives, of course, diverged. In 1986, George left Wham. Andrew was left somewhat at loose ends. George was on an obvious fast track to stardom. Andrew withdrew. Uh, but they reunited from time to time, and uh, they, they, um, th they both knew that without the other, they were lost. George had gotten a lot of flack over being a blue-eyed soul singer who was topping the black music charts. And um, a few people, including uh, Gladys Knight, uh, Dionne Warwick, and Freddie Jackson, notably in a whole Los Angeles Times feature, uh, he hated George Michael. And all of these, yeah, because they all, all these singers felt that George didn't belong there, that he didn't deserve that place. And um, one of the interesting things about George's singing, though, is, and I could compare him here with Elton John, because Elton did ape black singing mannerisms. He did copy that kind of diction, and George did not. George maybe emulated the soulfulness, but that was the feeling part. And otherwise, he just sang the way George Michael sang. He didn't do anything affected, in my opinion. I, I imagine you agree, yeah. Um, so, uh, still, the, the Queen of Soul likes you and agrees to record a duet with you, and George was petrified of being in the studio with her for the first time. Uh, it did not impede his performance in any way because she was her, he was him, and he didn't tr try to up his soul quotient any more than he already had it in that wonderful duet. So Aretha genuinely does. blows me away is that young gay people who are aware of George, and a lot of them are, and who didn't grow up with George and who don't know all the minutia of his life story, they look upon him as a gay hero. All that they see is this handsome, uh, strapping, sexy, confident gay guy standing on these big stages, conquering. And they derive tremendous strength from that. And the other stuff that I just mentioned doesn't seem to matter. It's been swept away with time. Cause I gotta have You've been listening to James Gavin, author of the biography George Michael A Life, published by Abrams Press recorded at the Grammy Museum in Los Angeles on June 20, 2022, with moderator Adam Weisler. I'm Brian DeShazer for This Way Out.
Thanks for finding This Way Out, brought to you by the nonprofit Overnight Productions. News Wrap was reported this week by Michael LeBeau and Ava Davis and produced by Brian DeShazer. Our feature, George Michael, A Life, with biographer James Gavin, was produced by Brian DeShazer, courtesy of the Grammy Museum. Miley Cyrus and Dolly Parton, Sugar Loaf and George Michael performed some of the music you heard, and Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This Way Out thanks John Beaupre and Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley. Listener donors make this program possible. Please join them. Look for This Way Out Radio on social media, email us at info at thiswayout.org, or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078, USA. For coordinating producer Greg Gordon and everyone at This Way Out, I'm Lucia Chappell. Thanks for listening online at thiswayout.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And on 2MTM Coonamble, New South Wales, KPNW Bellingham, Washington, WOOL Bellows Falls, Vermont, and a wide array of community terrestrial and internet radio stations around the world, including this one. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay tuned, y'all.